often in our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we respond when our heroes fail, when those we look up to uh, falter, when those whom perhaps we'd always viewed as being so much holier than ourselves, a, a, a rock and uh, a, a strong fortress, when we realize that they are clay pots like the rest of, the, the, like the rest of us? What do we do when our heroes fail us? And we recognize that they are made of stuff just like us. Weakness, they have a sin nature, remaining sin, and, and uh, that sin is always at the door with them as well. And we, they, like us, are, are capable of falling into sin really at any time. What do we do? Well, that's the, the question, uh, one of the questions we ask in this passage, the questions that we're going to be asking as we uh, consider this part of David's life as he flees from the land of Israel and he goes and, and takes refuge in uh, Philistia for a year and four months. A hero in the faith who falters. We'll look more at, at, uh, at, at, at what's going on in his life right now and how he has faltered. But first, just to, to, to set the table a little bit, uh, in New West we've been going through First Samuel, so as we Jumped into 1 Samuel 27 this morning. Most of, of everyone is, is clear of where we've been and, and somewhat aware of where we're going. So let me just review uh, for a moment here. 1 Samuel is about the transition from the judges to the kingship of Israel. Saul is first chosen as king. He's a king uh, like the other nations. He's the king that the people want. But he's not the man of God's choosing ultimately. Saul stops listening to God, and God uh, rejects him as king, and he chooses David instead, a man whom he says is, is someone, a man after my own heart, a man after God's own heart. And after David defeats Goliath, and the women start singing songs about how David has killed his thousands, yes, or, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. It's from that moment on that Saul becomes jealous, and he becomes really obsessed with getting rid of David. And the more he knows, even as his son Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 23, my dad knows that you're going to be king. He knows it, but it seems like the more he knows it, the more obsessed he gets with trying to get rid of David. And so from Basically, 1 Samuel 19 on, it's, it's all about Saul hunting David. And David, as he says to Saul, is like, my, I'm always a step away from death. But through the midst of all of that, David keeps on receiving these reassurances from the Lord that God is with him, that he will be the king, he is chosen, that he is held in, hands, in, in, in the hands of the Lord and he will prevail. But here in 1 Samuel 27, he seems to forget all of that. And he lives more by fear than by faith. He finds his security in Philistia rather than in the Lord his God. Now we don't want to be proud. We don't want to be arrogant as we see David's uh, sins here. We want to understand that, that, that we are fully capable of, of just the same. We are no better than he. But it's one of the things that we will be looking at. And notice also that this is part of a larger story. 1 Samuel 27 through 28 verse 2. 
that it carries on all the way through to through chapter 30. David has been taking refuge in Philistia and Achish, who really thinks that David is pro-Philistine now and anti-Israelites, that David and his men are going to come fight with him in battle against the people of Israel. And David's men, they start their march with him in chapter 29, but they get about halfway up the coast of Canaan and the rest of the Philistine kings say, hey, what's this guy doing here? Uh -uh, Uh-uh, we don't trust him to actually stand with us in the end. He's going to have to go home. And so though Achish pleads with them, no, David and his, and his merry men are, are sent home, but they come home to Ziklag and the city of the town has been burned. And all the women and children of all of these 600 men are gone. And it gets really, really messy. And David, he's at the point where his men are about to stone him. And for the first time in this entire episode of his life, he calls upon the name of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. He wants to know not what he says in his own heart, but he wants to know what the Lord has to say to him in this situation. And so that's the, that's the larger story, but the, the Spirit-inspired author, he leaves us hanging here. A passage where God is not mentioned, God is not sought out, God is not in, on David's tongue. It appears that God is not even in his heart at this point. David is running away, we might say. God is here, absolutely. God is always with David. God is always with his people. God never fails. He is always faithful to his promises. But it is we, like David, who so often run away. So we'll see in this chapter that stumbling sinners find their security in the one who never fails. Stumbling sinners find their, their security in the one who never fails. First of all, we'll see David's faithlessness. And secondly, God's faithfulness. Simple. But it's really a simple gospel to which we need to cling as we, as we read a chapter like this. Not an easy chapter to understand, not an easy, easy chapter to preach. We wonder where, where is the gospel in this? Well, the gospel is certainly here as uh, as we will see first of all david's faithlessness if you look with me in the previous chapter to first uh, samuel 26 verse 9 just previously to this david has had a chance his second chance in which saul was in his hand. The first chance was in chapter 24 when David and his men were in a cave and Saul came into the cave to relieve himself. He had no idea that David and his men were there and David had an opportunity to strike him dead but instead he just cut off a, a corner of his robe so he could, re- he could show Saul, hey, I had an opportunity to kill you but I did not. Now why are you hunting me? And Saul says, oh, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And Saul starts hunting him again. And then in chapter 26, David sneaks into the camp with Abishai. And there's Saul, the center of the camp, snoring away. He's got a spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abishai says to David, let me do it. Certainly this is God's will. It's your opportunity, David. I'll do it. One swift plunge of that spear into into Saul and I won't have to do it again and it's over and you're free and the pathway to the kingdom is yours you don't have to go through all of this anymore 
And now listen to David's answer. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Here they have this conversation in the middle of the camp at night when everybody's sleeping. We read later, well, God had settled them into a deep sleep. They're snoring away so that they, they don't wake up to any of this. Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So he acknowledges God's sovereignty and providence in all of this. And then later on in the same chapter, in verse 23, David says to Saul, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. And this has happened repeatedly in David's life up to this point. He was on his way in chapter 25 to kill Nabal because Nabal wouldn't give him, wouldn't share his, his, his goods with him. And he was, he was like, I'm ready to kill this insolent man and his whole household. And he's going up to kill him to destroy all of Nabal's households. And Nabal's wife, Abigail, comes out and says, don't do this. On your way up to the top, don't stain your hands with blood. Don't you know that your life is bound up in the Lord's hand with the bundle of the living? God will bring you to your throne, but you let him do that. And David worships the Lord, and he says, thank you, God, for sending this faithful woman to show me my sin, and he turns to the Lord. Anyhow, these kinds of things are happening again and again. Jonathan reminds David, you will prevail. Saul himself says to David at the end of chapter 26, you will do great things and surely triumph. What's the point of all of this? David is constantly being reassured by the Lord, I've got this. Saul's not going to prevail. You will prevail. David himself has preached it. And now, one sentence later, David thought to himself. In other versions, it it says, David said in his heart, which if you go through the Bible, unless you can correct me if I'm wrong, maybe that's your challenge for this week, go through your Bibles and find a place where it says so-and-so said in his heart. And, and that they do that in a positive way. It's always the wicked. It's the fool. It's the arrogant who's, who, where we read, they say in their hearts. Well, that's what David, he's curved in on himself. He doesn't say to the Lord. He doesn't seek the Lord. He says to himself, one of these days, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. Well, what happens to his trust? The unfailing providence of God, that God is his deliverer and he won't take matters into his own hands. That seems to all have gone out the window. And so he hikes off to Philistia. Now he goes to live with God's enemies. The same people of Goliath, whom David had killed so mightily in faith. He acts in fear rather than faith. He's finding his security in Philistia rather than in his God. Now again, We don't want to be all high and mighty about this. We're fully capable of the same. And recognize, even if we can't excuse David, we can understand David. He has been under such pressure for so long. 
Eventually, he just wants a good night's sleep. He just wants some rest. He wants to get away from it all. We know how it's in those incredibly, in those times of great, intense pressure that the temptation then is to, to take matters into our own hands. Right? To find the way of peace and life and happiness and in the way of sin and the way of our own understanding and the way of, of our own control over things. But that doesn't excuse any of it. And it doesn't excuse it in David either. He is forsaking his people. He is acting in fear rather than faith. And you say, well, it's maybe a little bit exaggerated to say he's forsaking his people. But notice what happens. He he moves to, to Gath, the city in Philistia. And King he asks King Achish, hey, hey, give me a place in the, in the country, please. I just want a little house in the countryside. Me and my men, uh, David and his 600 men with their wives and children. So we're looking at maybe two to 3,000 people. A lot of people to take care of. So Achish says, sir, here's Ziklag. And it would be something like 20 miles south of Gath. And while he's living there, David goes on these raiding excursions, raiding the bands of raiders, Amalekites and Geshurites and, and Gerzites. We know very little about the Geshurites and Gizrites, but we uh, and Gerzites, but we know the Amalekites. These were those who Saul was supposed to kill. These were the ones that the Lord commanded Joshua. You know, they they need to be devoted to destruction because of their wickedness in order to cleanse the land. So on one hand, we can say, well, David's doing what, what the people of Israel should have done long ago and what Saul should have done. But David's not doing this out of a motive. Uh, you know, he's not motivated by zeal for the Lord. What's going on is that as he goes on these raiding parties, these raiding excursions to get all of this, all of this loot, he makes sure he kills every man and woman, not out of zeal for God's holiness and His judgment upon their wickedness, but because dead men tell no tales. He doesn't want any survivors running back to Achish and saying, this is what David's doing. Because every time he comes back to Achish, Achish asks, so where have you been today? Who, who have you looted today? And David always tells him that he's been looting one of the towns of Judah. Not so. He's been going south of that all, even on, on the way to, to Egypt, along the, the coast of, of the Mediterranean and, and, and south towards the, the Sinai deserts to destroy towns there, he's not been hurting the Kenites. He's not been hurting the people of Judah. In fact, later on from this loot, he will send gifts to those exact people that he tells Achish he's been fighting. What Achish thinks then is that uh, David who is no longer welcome in Israel, wants nothing to do with the people of God anymore, that David is now pro-Philistine and anti-Israel. And David is happy to keep it that way. Even though David is not physically harming the Israelites, with his words, he's like an apostle Peter. And he's denying the people of God. With his words, he is happy for King Achish to think that he is against the people of Israel. Well, where does this lead for David? Well, in the beginning of, verse tw- of chapter 28, we see that now Achish says, and you're going to fight with me against them. And we think, oh boy, what a tangled web David is weaving with his deception. 
What are we to do with all this? The text itself never explicitly condemns David. But in the light of what he has just confessed and what the Lord has told him again and again and again, we see he is acting by fear rather than faith. When we hear about his attacks on these nations, these towns and settlements, the text doesn't say, you know, how David did it for God. It says David did it for himself so that Achish wouldn't find out the truth of what was going on. David is the chosen king of Israel. And yet he has left the land, the people of God. This can't be good. Moreover, God is not mentioned once. David says in his own hearts, but he doesn't say to God. It's not until, as we mentioned earlier, 1 Samuel 30, when he is at the end of his rope, and he's about to be stoned by his own men, and his wife and his children have been taken captive, that he reaches out to the Lord, and he seeks the Lord's face, that he's repentant, and he returns. What are we to do with this moment? Why is it in the Bible? How are we to see the gospel in all of this? Well, again, we ask the question, how do we respond when our heroes fail? Can be very troublesome to us. Or when we read the uh, read Hebrews 11 about the, the hall of faith and we're looking through the list and we're like, Samson? Samson who was an adulterer? Or Jephthah who made a rash vow and sacrificed his own daughter? Or David who committed adultery with Bathsheba? Who murdered Uriah? Who has multiple wives? David, he's a man after God's own heart. And we begin to wonder, you know, what God, why did you reject Saul, but you chose David? What's so great about David? There's nothing great about David. If David is a man after God's own heart, it's because God has made him that way. It's because God has chosen him and given him grace. God never has worthy and clean material to work with. All the people outside from the Lord Jesus Christ, every man, woman, boy, and girl in the Bible of whom we read is made of the same stuff that we are, prone to sin. Sin is always at the door. Always threatening to have us. They are capable of falling. We are capable of falling fully so. And like David, it's, it's often at the times when we are at the peak of our religious life that we can be the most susceptible and the most prone to falling. It's just after he's made this glorious confession that we see it, it, it's, it's like he doesn't even believe what he's been preaching. And we all have that in our lives where our lives do not match up with our confessions. There's a gap there. The fact of the matter is the story of God's kingdom is the story of God's grace in which He chooses the weak and the despised and the lowly. He has come to save not the righteous, but sinners. Grace is for everyone who turns to Christ and finds grace in Him, not to those who have avoided major sins and 
you know, and put on a good front and who clean up well on Sundays. We're learning a lot about grace then as we look at King David and ask, why, why choose him? Well, God did not choose David because there was something in him. When we read that he's a man after God's own heart, again, what distinguishes him from Saul? Saul's a sinner. David's a sinner. They're both failures. Why does God reject Saul, but he keeps David? Well, we can say in Saul's life, we see that he never repents. He never turns back to the Lord while David does. And this is true. And this is important. When we say, hey, we're all saved by grace, that does not mean, so go and sin and, and, and live like hell because it's all God's grace anyways. That's not the point. No, we are called to repentance. And those who come to God, those who find in Him who are saved by His grace, He changes. And, and all of that matters. But the, but the truth is, if there's any good in us, it is all owing to God's grace. When he finds us, we are, Romans 5 says, ungodly, enemies, sinners, undeserving. Saul and David equally undeserving. You and I equally undeserving. Saul has only to bl himself to blame for his sins. God didn't do that. Saul did that. But when we see later David turning and repenting, we don't say, ah, a boy, you know, that's why God chose you because you're, in the end, you're really a good person. No, it was God who in His grace renews David. It's God who in His grace gives us faith and gives us repentance. And even that repentance by which we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ is not something now we do and we can hold up to God and say, see, I did this little bit. Now, now I deserve your grace. Repentance is very simply turning in our helplessness, in our lostness, in our undeservedness to the God of all grace who gives. Who gives our salvation. And the good that we do Good works in our lives, they can be an encouragement to us. We can see the, 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 that there's truly a living faith in us. But we can never find refuge in those good works. They never for a moment deserve anything from the hand of the Lord. And the fact of the matter is, the moment we begin to start taking pride in our spiritual life, that's when, just like David, we are prone to fall. Here's the, here's the point of it all. You can't trust yourself or any other person, for that matter, to be your Savior. You can't find refuge in yourself, your good works, your heart, your faithfulness, or the faithfulness of, of, of those around you. When we see people in high places, maybe pastors, speakers, Christians, who, who we respected so much and, and maybe listened to and, and loved and, and, and shared their books and their CDs, and, and then we see them fall hard. What God is helping us to see is you can't worship your heroes. We have one hero, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why God chose David. It's for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the kingdom of Christ. God preserved David in spite of his sin and his stumbling for the sake of Christ. And so that we could see not that we need David, not that Christ came because David was so great and he needed to restore what David had done, but Christ that God gave David 
for the sake of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the one that we need. We ought never to lean on our own understanding, on our own flesh. We lean upon the one who is the only refuge in all of life. David gives in to fear. We too were tempted so often to give in to fear. And of course, we need to be wise, we need to be responsible. We need to use our understanding and our brains and not do stupid things. But we know how capable we are when we're, when we're looking for security in life and in our future, security of our reputation and career and finances and family, how very quickly, as, as Dale Ralph Davis says, the proverb when, when God says, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him. We like to flip that around. We tend to want to lean on our own understanding and, and, and then use God. But he's saying, no, don't lean. Use your understanding, but don't lean on it. A hundred different ways that we like to take control and say, I'm going to, right, I can't handle this anymore. God ought to have given this to me by now, or I deserve this, or whatever it is, if only this, if, if only I didn't have this circumstance in my life, if only I was here and not there, and we start to think that happiness, happiness is within our reach, within the reach of our wisdom and our ways. And we stop leaning on the one God who is willing and able, who loves us as a father. the one refuge whom we need. And ultimately, as we acknowledge, and this is a story of God's grace in the lives of sinners for the glory of Christ who is the Savior of sinners. We're reminded of the Apostle Paul, right? Who says, God didn't choose me because of any good in me. I was a wreck. I was an absolute wreck. I, I was destroying the church. That was, that was my one and first love. But God saved me. Why? To magnify His grace and His glory. Because I am the chief of sinners. And when we're at that place, when we're at that place, that's when we acknowledge again that we need Christ as our refuge. The God who will never fail. The God whose grace will always be sufficient. The blood of Christ, which will always be enough. There's, not, no, there, there's no sin too great. There's no, no place too far that we can fall. No past so hideous. No, no challenge in our lives so insurmountable that we are beyond the reach of God and His grace because grace is free. And we have no warrants in, in ourselves like the elder brother in the parable to thumb our nose at, at those who have made a mess of their lives. Or according to the parable of the workers in the vineyard, you know, a bunch of workers work all day in the heat of the sun and then some guys come at the very last minute and they all get paid the same and they're like, what gives? We put in so much more than those guys over there and God says, what, you think this is a matter of you putting in so many hours? And then earning a wage. No, this is about grace, which is full and free for undeserving sinners. 
the arithmetic of, arithmetic of grace is none of you deserved it. It is all my goodness. The refuge of God will always hold. His promise never fails. We dare not trust ourselves. We dare not trust our own. The anchor of God's faithfulness will always hold. Sin is always at the door until the day we die. We will always struggle with that. That will always be there. But the refuge will never change. And the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ will always be the free, the sufficient, the altogether meritorious foundation of our salvation. Amen. Let's stand to sing hymn number 53.